Well, how about we start with uh, putting a little bit of context of your connection to Southern Manitoba, and then from there we'll build into uh, the book and how it's going to be released here very shortly, Jukebox Empire. I grew up in uh, Morden, and uh, my grandfather came to Morden uh, about 1891. My family uh, was in business there for 97 years. Uh, my grandfather and then my father operated uh, a store. Um, they last 63 years uh, until 1990, right in the center of town in Stephen Street. And for me, it was a very special place to learn about humanity and the people of the town and the ethnic diversity that uh, we were surrounded with and to really understand and I learned a lot of this from my father, that to treat everyone uh, equally and with respect. So, <clears throat> as, as you know, uh, a variety of ethnic groups uh, and now the new immigration coming to southern Manitoba, I think, makes it a very special place. And as I've gone out in the world, this really informed my worldview. Now, we have you joining our uh, morning show today there, David, to talk about your new book. It's called Jukebox Empire, and I just want to read the tagline because it's going to really set us up on an interesting conversation. An aspiring tycoon partners with a racketeer to build a jukebox that makes millions, then takes the fall for the largest money laundering scheme in history. And the amazing thing here, David, is there is a strong family tie to why you're writing this book. So let's start there. It's the family tie that started the whole project. Uh, I've had a long career as a primarily a documentary filmmaker and uh, a, a, a television executive. But since I was uh, a teenager, I was quite fascinated by my Uncle Bill because my father was one of seven in his family. And this was his brother whom I had never met. It was very unusual in a, a close family. And so I had a lot of curiosity about him. And what sparked my interest particularly was as a maybe 12 or 13 years old, kind of hidden away, I found a photograph of this uncle with my father. And it looked like something out of an old gangster movie. <laughs> and there's a, a pile of money on the table in front of them. This photo is in the book, so you can, can see this. And when I got my father to talk about it, he said, look closely at the money. Those are $1,000 bills, which I learned later you know, were the mob's preferred unit of uh, money transfer. So that's how the story began, my curiosity into it. And what that led to was my dad said, you know, Bill, he built the first jukebox that could play more than 10 records. And when I began drilling into that, a lot of other things opened up. And it was through your investigation, obviously, prior to the writing of the book, that you kind of went from finding that photo to the story that we're reading now in Jukebox Empire. Just kind of encapsulize for us, David, that investigation and some of those key things that you found along the way. There's two major aspects to the book. The first third of the book uh, covers the development of the jukebox 
and its technology and how for about a three-year period, the jukebox that my uncle built was the absolute king of the heap. They made millions of dollars. He bought a surplus plane from the United States Army and barnstormed the country with these jukeboxes. Well, the whole thing fell apart uh, in a patent case, sued from another Manitoban, from David Rocola, who was from Verdon, Manitoba. And when that blew up, my uncle was concerned because he owed his investors, who were the racketeers who collect all the coins that go through jukeboxes, for their investment in his company. That led me to the second uh, narrative in the book, which leads to the largest money laundering scheme in history. That's what the U.S. Department of Justice called it. And your research for this book took in a lot of what we would call official documents, if you will. What were some of the materials that you were working with and reviewing in order to create Jukebox Empire? The first real breakthrough in doing the research came from the National Archives and Records Administration in the United States. And we've become kind of familiar with NARA, as it's called, because that's the agency that sued Donald Trump to return the documents from Mar-a-Lago. But I found a sympathetic clerk in the Chicago office, and this took several months of back and forth. And finally, she found for me the uh, transcripts of the court cases that led up to the patent uh, case that I mentioned with the jukebox. But nothing had been digitized. In fact, the, the, I have photocopies, but you can kind of smell the mildew on them. They're, they're so old. They're from 1949. Uh, and that's what led me. There were so many law cases, so many suits, that that led me to the second set of trials, which related to the money laundering case, which happens between 1959 and 1962. What was it like researching and then ultimately sitting down and writing the book, David, and you're writing about places, people, family members that perhaps you thought you knew or maybe didn't know as well as you thought you knew, and you're discovering all of these pretty mind-blowing things along the way? I tried to put myself in their place, and as a filmmaker, uh, to really, uh, in the book, developed the texture of the times and relating to uh, changes of technology, of fashion, of how people spoke. Now, I was very fortunate in that because uh, in the 1940s, there was a little suitcase recorder called a recordio that recorded on 78 RPM discs, two and a half minutes per side. And my father had kept all of these. They would travel and he would get together with his brothers and sisters and make these recordings to send back to my grandparents in Morton. So I knew exactly how they spoke, the the rhythm and pattern uh, of of their speech. And along with the documents, uh, I had actual dialogue to work with. So that gave me a lot of insights into their attitudes uh, and their demeanor. 
So as you were working your way through putting the book together, you're doing the research, were there any surprises or things that really caught you off guard as you were doing this research into your uncle and and his connection to these racketeers and just the overall story? There was a huge breakthrough, which came in 2018. Uh, I had been working on the book, uh, not continuously, but uh, off and on for about five or six years uh, before that. And uh, the publisher had asked me to expand the book. At exactly that time, uh, under something called the Kennedy Assassinations Records Act, which was passed by the U.S. Congress in 1992, they gave federal agencies 25 years to release or declassify any documents relating to the assassination of JFK. In 2018, more than 18,000 documents were declassified, and I found references to my uncle and his cohorts, uh, primarily in the money laundering case, in over 100 of those documents. And I will say, relating to my career, uh, a number of years ago, uh, I produced a miniseries called Secret Files of the Inquisition, which was based on documents from archives of the Catholic Church in Europe. And I, just uh, to your question about the journalism involved, uh, this felt so similar, piercing through all of these documents and finding references to the people. And, you know, they wiretapped them. They, they knew which hotel rooms they stayed in. They knew if my uncle was traveling with a beautiful woman, they booked two hotel rooms. One of them wasn't used. So the FBI tracked all of this. But I, for my own experience, it had a, a kind of parallel to working with files from the Vatican. Except they're in Latin, of course. <laughs> so now that uh, now that the book is is coming out, Jukebox Empire, there, David. How do you think it will add or change the perception of your uncle Bill? One, did it change it for you? And and do you think it will change uh, him to those that still remember him and your family in that Morden area and Southern Manitoba? Everyone who knew him told me that he had a special charisma. And that whatever he set out to do, uh, it was he, he aimed for the big score. He lived large. And we have that sense of him. Uh, so I don't view him as a criminal, more as a rogue uh, who enjoyed the caper. He enjoyed the high life. I mean, they went to Europe. Uh, and at one point, according to the uh, uh, court testimony, he actually offered to buy a German bank. And the, the banker said, how can you buy my bank? What's your financing? And his response was, we have unlimited financing. Every coin that goes through every machine in the United States. So he lived large. Uh, he uh, saw himself in this way. But in the end, and I don't want to spoil the book, uh, I do view him as rather a tragic figure. And just to tie this up in a bow there, David, uh, did you ever have the opportunity to meet your Uncle Bill in any respect? After uh, he passed away, um, and this is close to 50 years ago, my father received a box that came with my uncle's home movies, a 16 millimeter film. 
And it turned out that he had come to Morden in the early 1950s when I was born to see his new nephew and congratulate his his uh, brother and sister-in-law. So we never actually met in terms of a recollection that I have, but it is documented in that film that we did intersect at one point. As the book Jukebox Empire is being released there, David, as we wrap up here this morning, what are you taking away from this multi-year experience of researching your family, finding these ties, and ultimately putting it all down on a page to share with those that choose to read it? I'm a storyteller. That's been my my whole career in uh, various media. And I hope that people will read this book and be very entertained, as well as learning some insights about the technology and the world we've uh, grown up in and how things have changed. 